And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. The Athletic. Once again, Mark Marquez is the biggest story of a MotoGP weekend in which he didn't even contest the Grand Prix, with Honda admitting for the first time that it may well actually lose him. And he's not the only current Honda rider who might be heading for the exit, and the other two who are suddenly in the thick of an unexpected silly season didn't even race at the Dutch TT either. This is the Race Motor GP podcast. I'm Matt Beer. I've got Simon Patterson recording from a quiet corner of Assen and Val Horinci with me. And we promise we will discuss a few things that happened on track at the Dutch Grand Prix. But frankly, that can all wait a little bit because there's far more interesting stuff happening off track right now. So when we last talked to you last week, we were fresh from a Saxon Ring weekend in which Marquez crashed five times at a circuit he used to rule at, trundled home out of the points in the sprint and then withdrew before the start of the Grand Prix. And you wouldn't have thought things could get much worse than that, but actually, actually, they kind of did. So before talking about what Marquez and Honda said, we should chat a bit about uh, what happened in the brief time he was on track. And I think we should probably start with uh, the... So we're very used to Marquez following people in qualifying, but not actually bumping into them in the process. Uh, Who wants to explain what happened in Saturday morning's incident to start with? Go on, Val. Well, I I would actually like to start the previous day, weirdly, because it was the second crash of his weekend already. I was going to say, did I miss a crash? Yes, I, yeah, there was another one, wasn't there? Yes, yes. So he crashed on Friday while trying to follow someone. He went for Ascent Specialist-ish, Maverick Vinales, and just couldn't, basically, I think, just couldn't keep up with him. He tried really hard to push in the first couple of sectors with the, with the slow corners, because through the fast ones, he just had nothing, and he, he crashed. Uh... That was relatively okay compared to what happened on Saturday when uh, he picked an A. Bastianini as his Q1 target. Bastianini on that lap made a mess of the first corner, so Tuck the front had to pick it up. Marquez decided he, you know, laps probably ruined. He's going to stay with him. They were both rolling around the outside of turn three and turn four, so Ossebroiken and I guess the second part of Ossebroiken. I don't know what turn four is called. Um, and yeah, so both looking over their shoulders. And at one point with Mark looking over his shoulder, Bastianini to let more people through, just cut the gas. And as soon as Mark looks back already, oops, here's a Ducati, slams into it, falls off, session over, Q1 over, qualifies, P17, game over. Uh, apparently did more damage to his rib. So he had a like a hat-trick of injuries coming into the weekend he had a busted ankle he had a broken thumb and those two were sort of manageable and then he had a rib fracture that wasn't diagnosed right away that was the big problem and the crash seemingly maybe made it worse in the sprint he yeah he had nothing he i think went 17th to 11th at the start and then immediately back and back and back and back who was he fighting at the end of the sprint? I think Lorenzo Savadori, the Aprilia wildcard. Savadori had an excellent end. weekend. Yeah. yeah, so Mark had no. It's a good Savadori weekend, but no, Mark Marquez should not gonna, be fighting. I was going to say Savadori fan club corner yeah. here. Yeah, he had a really yeah. good weekend, but yeah, Mark, Mark Marquez should not, should not be fighting Lorenzo Savadori normally. So yeah, Savadori 
overtook him maybe didn't doesn't matter anyway because no points and then overnight the situation gets worse more pain he wakes up goes to the medical center they see that the rib is doing even worse than they thought he was doing and well that's that's all she wrote for the weekend almost because then two pretty big media sessions almost yeah, yeah. it sounded like he'd cracked the rib when he fell off in uh, Saxon Ring, that big high side. And whenever you go back and look, you can basically see the moment it happens because the bike does slam into him um, pretty high in his chest. It was his second rib down in the left side, so it was pretty high. Uh, it sounds like he maybe cracked it in that crash, saw that it was crashed, cracked post-race um, and during the week, and then maybe the other crash has finally broken it. Um, or maybe it was broken all along, but you know, he was saying there was like two millimeters of movement between the two broken ends of it. And if anyone has ever broken a rib before, it is just the most hellishly painful thing because it hurts every time you take a breath. Um, so to even get as far as he did was quite impressive. But I mean, the crash that did it was the most predictable thing that has ever happened in MotoGP because it was only a matter of time until he got caught out trying to get a toe off someone and something like this happened. Um, it is a total consequence of his own actions for a long time now. And, you know, I, I don't want to, I'm not going to say that it's karma or that he deserved it or anything like that. But if you're going to mess around like that and try and get a toe off people, which isn't illegal and isn't against the rules, you have to do it carefully because it's whenever you're not careful with it that it, it becomes you know something that really should have deserved a penalty, to be honest. And I think he was very unlucky to have got away without, um, without having a, a blooming long lap penalty that you can presume would not have been for Sunday's race, but would have been for the next race in which he contested, uh, given what happened the last time they tried to penalize him. But then, but then it would have been for Sunday's race because he, was, he would have started and parked it, I suspect. But yeah, yeah. so... Uh, honestly, I agree it should have been a penalty, and I also agree it was cack. But mostly, if there's one weekend where you maybe shouldn't, like there's no point because you're going backwards in the race anyway because you don't have it, you're in pain. This was maybe the weekend to just do the lap alone, and he can't, he can't accept it. He can't do it when there's a competitive session. He can't until until he has to basically until he realizes he has to. He, cannot do it when there's something on the line when there's a promise of any sort of reward it's just yeah it's a bit it's a bit sad it's it was just a all around a sad weekend because also his reasoning for it his initial reasoning was it's to you know to help honda with more data with more blah 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 uh i mean it probably does help a little bit but he's not at the pace that he's normally at so it's not super representative but his other reasoning was well, I can't go into the summer break like this after this, after the German Grand Prix. And I think people who, I don't know, let's not say gamble in the casino because I don't know anything about that, but let's say play online games, go into matchmaking <laughs> or whatever, have a particularly bad session and maybe don't want to end the night on that. They're like, I'll do another one. Can't, that can't be that. And he tried, it seems he tried to do this with Asen even while he was hurt just to have sort of a normal weekend under his belt and it just didn't work at all. No, it was just a complete, a complete, let's be honest, a complete waste of time for everybody involved. This is like the plot of an anti-gambling advert basically, isn't it? It's the person late at yes. night putting more money down when they really shouldn't and suddenly they've got no home. 
But I, yeah, yeah, I said Simon, he's done it for years, and, he, and you could say he always had it coming. But for me, the fact he's done it for years and this hasn't happened is more of a sign of how much of a, a pit he's in now. And, you know, Marquez has managed to hustle people around qualifying laps uh, as long as I can remember and not bumped into them while going slowly. But he's not, he wasn't at full strength. I'm not going to say mentally, maybe I do mean mentally, but his, his focus wasn't there. Yeah, was it? he said as much. Yeah. No, it wasn't. So it's he can kind of considered that afterwards. He talked about how he, uh, he was looking forward to the summer break and and specifically said to to repair his body and to fix himself mentally. And so speaking of that, we did think after he withdrew, it would be similar to Saxon Ring last weekend, where he gave a very quick Spanish TV interview, then departed. But actually, we were quite shocked on Sunday morning when we got notice that Honda was doing a full media session with team boss Alberto Pooch and Marquez as well. We did kind of brace ourselves for some kind of seismic announcement for a few seconds there. It wasn't seismic, seismic, but in Honda terms, it kind of was with the sort of stuff they were admitting for the first time. Well, Pooge wasn't at the Saxon ring for, I think, personal reasons, as far as it's been reported. Uh, his his father died uh, just before the weekend, so he was at home for that. So, if, by the way, if, if, if in any way, uh, shape or form, I came across as like questioning his absence at the Saxon ring, obviously was not. I mean, personal issues, no. Family loss, clearly not debatable. I was more wondering why Honda didn't have anyone else there facing any sort of questions, which I think is still a, a fair point to make. Yeah. Um, yeah, Alberto Pooge basically got the right question of, are you confident that Mark will be with you in 2024? And gave the right answer of, he's got a contract, but Honda isn't going to force anybody to stay. But still, you know, that's a combination of question and answer that we have not heard before. I am, I am wondering a little bit whether that's the Alberto Pooge position or the Honda position. I'm not entirely sure because uh, obviously Alberto Pooch is a Honda employee and a high-ranking Honda employee and in charge of the MotoGP team, but he's also sort of on the, the European side of operations and quite close, I think, to Mark specifically, it always seems. So I'd, 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 I'd really like to know if that's also the official position of the Honda Paymasters. But if it is, that's, I mean, that's, of course, pretty remarkable because that sort of, that puts the ball in Mark's court as to whether, hey, you don't, if you don't see the point in this, we're not going to keep you for 2024, but then also, you know, pay the massive salary that you're supposed to get in 2024 for the fourth year of the massive contract, presumably, which I think makes a lot of sense for Honda. Again, well, I, I, I've said this before, but I, I think their timelines don't align. And from everything Alberto Pooch said, I think there's an understanding that not only is the rest of this year going to be suspect but 2024 there's no reason to expect a, a magic huge turnaround and even if there's a turnaround i mean the contract's over at the end of that year and 2025 contracts will be decided at the start of 2024 so it's just the and, and mark is 30 timelines don't align first of all i think that the what he said was huge in the context of this it is the first time that anyone has openly spoken about the possibility of Marc Marquez not being at Honda next year from the Honda camp. Um, and knowing how the factory tend to work and, and sort of the way that they run their PR operation, normally people don't go into things like this at Honda without being briefed about what's going to be said or what's expected to be said. So I don't think that that was him. Uh, maybe the wording was him. Um, softening the blow or making it a bit more Mark friendly but I, I think if he's saying it then 
we have to presume that it's the official Honda line. Um, and that's them basically saying if, if Marc Marquez wants to go, he can go. Um, the contractual terms might be different and the, the financial terms might be difficult. But, you know, the door has been opened now, even if it's only been opened a crack. Um, well, very deliberately. Maybe that's a gamble. Sorry, very deliberately opened as well. Like you say, that it wasn't just that they would have been briefed about what, what might be asked. They had every chance to not have this media briefing at all. It was this is entirely yeah. voluntary by Honda to, to put Pooch and Marquez in front of the press, knowing what the questions were going to be and knowing what they were going to answer. So the message, the messaging is pretty clear, isn't it? I mean, Alberto Puig is a bit of a, a bit of a maverick, so I'm, you know, I'm still 50-50. But I think if there was a pre-session briefing, I mean, there's no way he didn't know this question was coming. No way, because it's, it's the only question. So there's no way they didn't know it was coming. Uh, and I mean, unless we suddenly hear some sort of massive Honda correction or retraction in the coming days, then I agree. We take it as the, the official Honda line, which I then agree is absolutely massive, yes. And the thing to remember is they could have done a Mark Marquez media debrief today without doing an Alberto Puig one. That for me is the bit of this that's that's different. Um, there was no need to put him in front of us today. No one expected him to get in front of us today. Yeah. Uh, and actually, quite strangely, they announced the the um, the Marquez one. So I'm actually I'm just going to check my phone to have a timeline on this because it came. Even the announcement came in quite a strange way. So we, we got a message this morning at 9.39 to tell us that Mark Marquez would speak at 12 o'clock. And then at 10.16, so 35 minutes later, we get a second message to tell us that Alberto Puig would speak 10 minutes before that. So, you know, th- there, was a, there was a decision made to add that second session that we didn't expect, that we didn't necessarily need. Wow. Uh, but but obviously someone at Honda, well, I mean, yeah, no, we're talking about it and we've got stories out yeah. of it. Don't get me wrong, but but no one at Honda needed to make that happen today. No, no journalist was clamoring for that to happen. Um, and even if we were, the traditional Honda line would have been to have put them in front of a camera with Dorna for 30 seconds and recorded a brief bit where they could control exactly what was said and exactly what was released and post it on MotoGP.com and then tell everyone else to go and have a look at that. So the, there was an effort made to say that. And I think knowing that, knowing that that was going to be the question, knowing that this is the first chance that most people have had to speak to the guy and you know, since, since Mugello. And I think the first time that he's done a sort of an open media debrief this year that I can recall, um, I think they almost wanted it out there. They wanted this on the table in a way that they could control. So I guess the obvious question then is what next? Yeah. If the door is open, not just to an end of contract move, but to an early split, there's not a lot of obvious gaps in the field right now, are there, when it comes to 2024 seats, but this is Mark Marquez. But it's not full-spec 2019 world-destroying Mark Marquez. It's Mark Marquez with a broken body and an awful lot of question marks. So everyone's off on holiday now, but who's phoning who in that time? Well, what, what Mark said, because of, the t- because of the timing of the sessions, obviously, the second Alberto Puig answered that question, it was immediately, Mark Marquez in the next session was immediately going to hear that quote put to him and be asked to respond to it, which Simon took care of. Thank you very much, Simon. Uh, and Mark, you know, Mark more or less batted it away with, I'm, look, I'm in no condition to, to think about my future right now and decide anything and speak about anything. 
which is both true and will not last for more than a few days because the summer break right now will be decisive for whatever question marks are left for the 2024 grid. I mean, that much is clear, I think. Yeah, he probably can't train a lot, can he? Yeah. So, you know, he may as well, like, <laughs> scroll through his phone contacts a yeah, little bit. Yeah, that's true. And I, honestly, I would not be in the least bit shocked if they're putting out feelers. In fact, I would be shocked if that is not happening because it has to happen, so it should be happening. Uh, there was a question about whether he would ride for a satellite team, which I think, again, he said, you know, we're not ready to think about that. But, I mean, that's not a no. Um I look, I don't see a great amount of vacancies for 24. Um, not anything that we could come up with is, you know, it's huge conjecture and, and speculation and ideas out of nowhere. Like if you were KTM and Dorna, would you say move heaven and earth to add a third KTM RC16 team to the grid and slot in Pedro Costa? And Mark Marquez solving the entire logjam rider problem in one fell swoop and also securing yourself the signing of a lifetime. Yes, yes, you would. But that's just that's just yes, speculation. There's no no real suggestion that something like that's happening right now. And the rest of the doors don't seem particularly obvious. They seem very, very hard to imagine. And a lot of it will depend on, you know, the financial demands from Honda on severing the contract, the financial demands of Mark Marquez on whether he's willing to forfeit the 2024 deal and whether he's whatever he's willing to be paid at wherever he goes, even if it's somehow a factory team. I mean, still, you know, he's not getting a the same kind of contract, obviously. But you know, the good thing about that previous contract is maybe it doesn't matter so much anymore. The the thing about what Mark Marquez said. Uh, the bit of it that, that kind of really drove it home to me that there's something to write about, something to report about here is that in the past he has been Mr. Honda and when we've asked him about something like this, he's immediately dismissed it immediately out of hand as I have a Honda contract and I'm staying with Honda because I'm a Honda employee. So whenever you can ask the question today and he even, even the fact that he admitted that there's something to consider, that for me, means that there's something, you know, that, that something has substantially shifted. Yeah. And the reality of the matter is that there are four other manufacturers on the grid at the minute in MotoGP, and all four of them potentially have an option to put Mark Marquez in a bike next year because Aprilia will sack Royal Fernandez. Yamaha are already looking for a replacement for Franco Morbidelli. Ducati uh, are debating who will replace Fabio Di Gentonio. And KTM have already floated this whole third team idea that, like you say, Val, would solve all of their problems at once. So it looks right now, yes, like the grid is is closed, but every team will take the opportunity to get Mark Marquez if they can because it's it's just a win-win-win situation. Now, everyone has a better bike than the Honda, including even Yamaha. So he will perform better than he's performing in the Honda and he'll get hurt a whole lot less. Um, everyone will take the huge sponsorship uh, PR plug that will come from signing one of the greatest of all time. Like everyone wants that. Um, and, and then thirdly, you know, if you are, if you're, if you're Aprilia right now, actually, if you're KTM right now, who are the ones that have the budget, if you're KTM right now and you see the, the theory, the possibility of a Mark Marquez on a Yamaha next or on a, a Aprilia next year, that's such an incredibly good breaking bike. You will do everything you can to make sure that doesn't happen because that is a surefire way to lose a championship. 
because I, I genuinely, I think, where Aprilia are at right now, um, with a bit of extra boost that would come from signing Mark Marquez, they'd win a championship. 100%. He, you know, or they'd fight for one. Nothing's a certainty, but they would go, so he would go straight back into title fighting contention the way that everyone saw him do in, in years like 17 and 18. Maybe not 19, because that year was something else. But, you know, so, so signing him, every other reason aside, you deny someone else the chance to sign him. That element is the biggest thing for me, because I... Th- I look around and every other every other brand has, if not a stacked lineup, enough riders. It doesn't have too many question marks over. Aprilia possibly the exception, but everyone else has got a lot of young riders or like a talisman rider like Quattararo at Yamaha. You've got someone you you know could lead you forward. You don't on paper necessarily need a possibly broken Mark Marquez who is not in the form right now that he used to be, but you cannot afford to take the gamble of letting someone else find out that Marquez still has that form in him because, like you say, suddenly that bike is a title contender. Mark Marquez is the person who can make the difference. So even for Ducati, which is massively not short of talented, competitive, potential title-winning riders, you you must be thinking, if Marquez is on any other bike other than ours, is that bike, apart from the Honda, is that bike suddenly a title contender? It potentially is. We can't risk that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, that's the difference. I think that's the... Even you look at the Yamaha M1, yeah, it's not very good, but it was two tenths off pole here. I would, I, I mean, I, I don't think he's going to Yamaha. Let me get that straight. Don't think that's, don't think that's happening. But you know, an Aprilia Marquez would be quite frightening. It would be, it would be quite a worrying prospect. Maybe he hops on on the RSGP and we find out that you know he's just not what he was. That he's not where he used to be. That you know, a, a couple of tenths have gone away and are not coming back. But I would not feel comfortable being sure of that now, certainly. And I would not I would not be betting on it one way or another. And I I don't think I think signing him if you can do it is a gamble that you still take. But of course it depends on the situation, it depends on the harmony, it depends on the demands, it depends on the money, blah blah blah. Uh but ultimately if every factory is pursuing a championship, that's you know, it feels like a no-brainer to me, you know. It is a potential route to it. It is one of those potential moves that... One of those moves where it's clear how you can win. The path to winning here is is obvious, which is not not something you can say with almost any other MotoGP investment you make. And the other thing is, it, it's a fairly simple investment from a team's perspective as well, because you will probably get them cheap, because... He's not going to have that many options. You know what I mean? There will be options, obviously. We've just said that there'll be options, but he'll come at a much less... It's not like they're trying to steal him away from Honda and his 25 million euros, right? It's going to be cheap. Um, And you're only going to have to sign him in a one-year contract because he's going to want to stay in alignment with everyone else um, whose contracts all end at the end of 24, like his, in theory, does. So if you can steal him away for one year, pay him very little in the grand scheme of things and get all the pluses of having Mark Marquez writing for you, then it's Valentino Rossi at Ducati. Even if it doesn't work, it's been a worthwhile investment. And at the end of it, if it isn't working, you you know, you don't even have to struggle through a second season. So it, it's, you know, said it before, it's it's a win-win all around. The, the Rossi comparison struck me as well in terms of 
how keen Dorna will be to try to make this happen somewhere because we, you know, we all know that oh, absolutely. An, an iconic rider or driver in, in other, other forms of motorsport moving teams is one of the biggest, biggest stories you can have. What that does to pre-season interest and anticipation is just phenomenal. Yeah. And this would be yeah, the biggest thing since Rossi's return to Yamaha, Rossi's moves. Actually, they're Rossi related, really, aren't they? Any move that has come close to this has been Rossi switching teams. Lorenzo going to Ducati wasn't in this, this league. So I can certainly imagine Dorna being as busy as Marquez's management right now in terms of working out which the best door to open is to make this the best story possible. We, we know from website traffic that the idea of Mark Marquez leaving Honda is one that people seem to be quite invested in. I mean, we, we've seen very recent evidence of that. Yes. So yeah, it's, I think for the, for the health of the championship, it would be very good also. So maybe that's, that's a reason to try and make it happen for everybody involved. But for me, the most important part is I think there's reason for Honda to make it happen because otherwise, otherwise it wouldn't matter because Honda has them under contract. And if Honda is insistent that he's staying, then none of this is important, but I think there might be reason for Honda to try to recoup some value on an asset that it will be paying in 2024 what the asset is not worth. Not in the sense that Mark is a bad rider now, not in the sense that he's not performing at the level that you know, he's earning money at or whatever, but in the sense that you don't need an elite rider when your bike is in this situation. You need a couple of young prospects that can help you mold the bike and you can help you can mold them with the bike and then set yourself up for future years you don't you don't need an elite rider right now you do not need to pay an elite talent that budget can be redistributed to poaching away technical stuff from other factories and the other thing to remember is that you know you talk about Dorna buy-in the, the the most likely the most straightforward path to putting them on a different bike next year is the one that involves considerable Dorna buy-in because it's the one where Dorna convinces the other factories to let KTM have six bikes in the grid instead of four. Uh, I know that they've said, oh, that might be a struggle to do. I don't know if we could fit that in, blah, blah, blah. They'll, they will build those extra bikes. If it means that Tech 3 suddenly ends up starting next season on this year's bikes again, whoop de doo Sorry, boys. Tough luck. Mark Marquez is here now. Um, you know, but that needs Dorna to, to kind of leverage it and to, well, to essentially say to the other satellite teams that we are going to allow another satellite team in the grid, but it isn't going to take away anything from the money that we pay you to be here. Now, which is something that is going to cost Dorna 4 million euros, something like that, 4.4. Um, they, they, they need either Dorna to front that or for Dorna to agree to let KTM there and waive it. But whatever way they do it, it needs Dorna buy-in. I think I think it would encounter resistance not just from satellite teams, but from certain manufacturers, like manufacturers that, for instance, this weekend vetoed an in-season format change because they could. So, <laughs> so that's also that would also be a, a hurdle to clear because obviously those manufacturers also have influence on their satellite teams. Blah 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 blah. So it's never that simple. Ultimately, when you run the championship, when there's a will, there might be a way. I'm not going to say usually is, but might be. They, uh, they're allowed to force through any rule they want on safety grounds. And um, there is an argument to be made that taking Mark Marquez off a of Honda and putting number on anything else is safer for the entire grid right now. <laughs> a, a PowerPoint with, I don't know, like Miguel Oliveira and Portimao and Bastinini yeah. being hits uh, yeah, at the yeah. back and ass envy. Like, this is a, this. Yeah, just a clip of, Mar of, of Miguel Oliveira looking into a camera and saying, please, please, please. 
the, the way Honda riders talk about Honda bikes now, the safety ground regulation would be just parking the RC 213Vs. I have to admit, one of my highlights of today was watching uh, replacement rider Ikala Kona basically punch an RCV into submission <laughs> after it broke down on him. I was like, oh, you learned fast, Iker. Well done. This is how everyone else feels about the bike, too. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Okay, on that topic of people not being that pleased with the Hondas they're on, yeah, we ended the weekend talking about Marquez exiting Honda. We started the weekend talking about the possibility of Joan Mir and Alex Rins, both both of whom also missed this race due to injuries, exiting Honda. As Simon, you discovered at the start of the weekend that the two riders who do have exit clauses in their contract, at least before Marquez stamped the big red button on his, the two riders who did have exit clauses for, say, Yamaha to look at were Mir and Rins. So... Let's reverse a few days before the Marquez situation explodes and look at the other Honda rider market um, bombshell that was dropped. Yeah, so it's it sounds like Yamaha. It sounds like Yamaha have kind of decided that Franco Morbidelli's done, that he's on his way out now. Um, it sounds less and less likely that he's going to stay there next year, and it sounds like their number one target to replace him is Alex Rins. Um, who is, of course, currently sidelined because a Honda RCV tried to kill him. Um, his main rivals for that role are his former Suzuki teammate, Sean Mir, um, who is also sidelined at the minute because a Honda RCV tried to kill him. Um, and weirdly, but maybe through a piece of absolutely fortuitous timing, it also sounds like British writer Jake Dixon is suddenly in that mix as a bit of a dark horse, uh, which is surprised. But you know, we, we've seen people come to us and win a race and suddenly earn themselves a very coveted MotoGP right off the back of a single performance like Fabio Quattararo. Uh Rins makes a lot of sense. Um, he is supremely talented. We all know how quick he is. We all know how good he is at riding an inline four. He's got a really old school riding style that in theory should fit the Yamaha really well and fit that flowy corner style, corner speed style that it needs. And potentially he's the easiest rider in the grid right now to get out of his contract because it seems like there's there's some sort of a performance clause in his satellite LCR deal, which which is a Honda deal. It's a contract with Honda, the factory, not with LCR. Um, but it, it seems like it's got some sort of an escape clause that I think as he lies in bed recovering from his second major surgery uh, in a few days that he's probably quite keen to trigger at this point. 
just looking at the standings, I mean, you say performance clause, Alex Rins is 13th. I don't, would they put a, would that trigger a clause for a satellite Honda? We don't know what the, what the clause is, if it is. While you have the standings in front of you, how many points does he have? Uh, like 40-something? Uh, 47, yeah. Okay, so remember that he scored uh, 35 of those in a single weekend. Yes. And yeah. then suddenly it looks a lot worse. You know, his quota weekend yeah. is skewing things. Uh, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, like, probably there's probably no stipulation in the contract that's like... Uh, Unless it all came on one weekend, in which yeah, case it doesn't yeah, yeah. count. But it, but it depends, yeah. you know, it depends so, exactly what it says. Yeah. If it's the yeah. average amount of points scored over the first eight races, yeah. it's probably still in his favor. You know, we, we obviously don't know the exact yeah. word in the contract, but yeah. Coda has kind of Coda has kind of made him look a lot better than he was. That one weekend has has kind of highlighted well, if, if you're a tentative Honda signing, you have a little clause in your contract saying any performance clauses don't count Kota or Saxon Ring in those. Exactly. In that, everywhere else, please. And if you're Honda, you make sure that clause is not in there. Although Saxon Ring didn't actually make any difference whatsoever this season. It's worth noting that both of these guys we're talking about, Mir and Rins, probably have got some sort of a clause in there because they're not actually... They're, they're, both of them are not Honda riders this year through choice. Yeah, yeah, true. In an ideal world, both of these guys should be Suzuki riders still because that's what they wanted to yeah. do. So you would imagine that they've they've worked in some sort of an escape trigger. If Alex Rins, which to be fair, it does make a bit of sense to me because Alcier Honda was not his only, I think, opportunity. There was sort of a musical chair. There was Grissini Ducati. Yeah. And, you know, he's a good enough rider to where he... You know, he would have had other interests, so there will have been competition. And what swayed him, I think, was a factory bike. But I also, I, I, I imagine it's a decent contract. It should be if if the job was done correctly. If if you're Honda, I a few months ago I would say, you know, fine. It's sort of like a luxury rider to have. You can let him go if he wants to be on a factory bike elsewhere. Now it's not a situation at all. You cannot let Alex Rins go. If you can hang on to him, you have to keep him. You have to keep him. You have to probably at some point you will have to put him in the Repsol Honda colors and maybe be your have him be your franchise man of which, you know, at Kota, we have seen glimpses of how that might work in an ideal world at all the other weekends. Most of the other weekends, we've seen something completely different. Um, Al- Alex Rins, I, I must have mentioned it before. I don't remember because I, I link so many people to Yamaha repeatedly over and over again. Every single rider that just pops into my head immediately gets linked with Yamaha. That includes, you know, Johan Zarco, Juan Mir, um, Maverick Vinales, Pedro Costa, Raul Fernandez. Salvadori. <laughs> um, funnily enough, Jake Dixon was not one of them. No. Not Jake Dixon. And not that, Jake Dixon. Yeah, I was about to say that. Not Jake Dixon. That has not changed, by the way. But anyway, um, Alex Rins is ideal it's perfect if you can get him you get him it's it is a, it would be a phenomenal Yamaha signing absolutely knocking it out of the park home run I think it would also be something that Alex Rins himself would quite appreciate because before he got super injured by the Honda he was also a, a bit grumpy at how much attention the factory was giving him and clearly he he feels himself as a factory rider in a satellite rider's clothing and he is he is a factory rider he's a MotoGP factory rider he is plenty good enough to do that role Yamaha would have great use of him if they can get him they should get him if they can't get him John Mears that's an interesting one I would I would like to see what sense it makes for both parties it's it's one I'm I I have a, a tougher time getting my head around a little bit 
I mean, for, for me, both of them share something in common in that they know how to work with a Japanese factory to develop a bike into a really good machine because both of them have that experience at Suzuki. Uh, you know, the, the Alex Renz did the lion's share of Suzuki's development work and in credit to him, he's the guy that took it from a, a very occasional winner into a title contender. Um, but Mir is also the guy that, that made it a title contender and won a championship with it. So both of them know how to work a Japanese factory and how to work a, a Japanese development program. Um, and I think that's probably what Yamaha are looking at in both of them. Um, it seems from what we can get that what we can gather that like Rins is the number one here, and that's probably off the back of his most you know his most recent form because not only is he a winner this year, but he ended his Suzuki days really strongly with two wins and three races while everyone else was struggling a bit. Or while Mir was struggling a bit, I should say. Um, I understand why they want him, but I, I get why they want Mir as well. Yeah, of um, course. I think, you know, I've seen what he's done. Um, I've seen what, if I've heard the feedback that he gives. And they both make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm not saying that Mir isn't a good target or isn't a good rider. Just the, the rinse fit works easier in my brain. Yeah, yeah. He's Mir is the second choice. It's... It's almost as if you like you recreate the Suzuki dynamic by having Alex Rins and Fabio Quartararo as your two. Yeah, that's makes a bit of sense to me. Not that I think that Jean Mir should not be under consideration, or that Jean Mir wouldn't be quite an exciting and a good and a fun signing to have. And also in their one season together at Leopard in Moto Three, Jean Mir did defeat Fabio Quartararo, I think, quite handily, if I remember correctly. Jake Dixon. I don't understand it very much. And that's not to say that I don't think Jake Dixon should be on the MotoGP grid, that I don't think that he has been good in Moto2. I think he has been pretty good in Moto2. It's just not the kind of Moto2 form that suggests to me a leap into the factory seat. And it's sort of, if I was a factory like Yamaha, there would not be not just more MotoGP options that I would look at, but also I look at more Moto2 options, I think. Um, so for me, it's it's a little bit hard to envision. Simon will attest, like during our Slack conversation earlier this this weekend, I said that he was like a, a slightly uh, like I don't want to say store brand because that's really mean to say about a human being, but I say like a slightly do- downgraded, slightly worse wor- worse version of Luca Marini in terms of the junior progression. But Luca Marini is actually a lot better of a MotoGP rider than I thought he would be, like a lot, a lot better. So. Dixon can be good in MotoGP. The, the British attraction is obvious. That's an obvious, understandable factor to me. So factory Yamaha, that's quite... That's a, that's, a, that's a big, big, big leap, isn't it? That's... I mean, it, if I said that the top rack Razgatlioglu move doesn't make sense to me, this is also on that wavelength, for instance. There's a couple of things behind the Dixon move that, that make sense to me. Um, although maybe not necessarily for a factory Yamaha. Um, one is that we know that there is a bit of there's a new push from uh, British broadcaster BT Sport to to basically execute the clause in their contract that says that Dorner's going to help them always have a British writer in the grid, um, and they're pushing big time to try and make that happen. Um, the other thing is that, and this is kind of forgotten in the Grand Prix paddock, but Jake Dixon's not a middleweight class writer. Jake Dixon is someone that fought for a British Superbike Championship and knows how to ride big bikes. Um, so there is a bit of a, you know, there's there's an element of him being a bit, 
hamstrung all these years on a 600, on a 765 as it is now, but a middleweight class bike, because that's not actually what he's best at riding. And we, we saw that when he was still a BSB racer. Um, the, the other factor is that he is to an extent a known quantity, especially by Yamaha, because they have two races of Jake Dixon MotoGP data. He's, he's rode a Patronus Yamaha and they've got that data. So they, they at least know what he's capable of and what his potential is. And then the other, just a little bit of like dark horse thing that helps his case in regards to it being a factor Yamaha is that he's Fabio Quartararo's best mate in the paddock. And that is just the sort of thing that fortuitously might help him be on the radar a bit more. And, and you know, if Fabio is pushing to have someone that he knows and trusts on the other side of the garage, maybe it's something that carries a little bit of extra weight. It, it's not going to be the decider, but it's just it's just another little piece of the puzzle. He was, you know, certainly excited by the, by the suggestion where he put to him. As excited as Fabio Cartero gets about any teammate Taco, just to say. When he's badly injured as well, when he's yeah. beaten up. And he was a bit down anyway, let's be fair today. But it's, you know, it was a more enthusiastic answer than all the previous ones, even when, say, yeah. his current teammate, Franco Morbidelli, specifically named. Fabio Cartero was like, I don't care. Yeah. I don't care at all. When, <laughs> like, not even, not even putting on the veneer of... I don't know. I wouldn't say like inter-team harmony, so it just doesn't doesn't bother him. It's like no. it, it, it doesn't feel like he and Morbidelli talk very much. I don't know if they're, no, they don't. It doesn't feel like they're maybe big rivals or anything. I don't know. It's just like there's no there's no chemistry. Um, yeah. As someone that worked in a team with both of them, there, there's no real chemistry. There's no connection. There's no you know they're they're not enemies, but they're not friends. Yeah, I mean, they're I guess they are slightly different guys, but also just the the career circumstances for both of them make a bit of sense to me yeah. in, into why it maybe wouldn't necessarily work out so well. But that's that's not going to be... If Franco Morbidelli's Yamaha career ends, that is not going to be what does it in. What will nope. do it in are weekends like this Dutch TT weekend, which was real bad. Maybe yeah. his worst weekend of the year. Awful timing. Should not do that coming into the summer break. But he was just no good this weekend. He was... Yeah. At a circuit where the Yamaha should be amazing. Yeah, so he was performing... Basically around maybe the same places that he was with the M1 of the other weekends. But Quartararo took this giant leap forward, you know, ignoring the race retirement and the slow start. Quartararo had a lot of pace. Or really had none. And this is sort of... I, I still was thinking they might recommit because it's too much of a headache not to. And because there have been really good Franco Morbidelli weekends that we shouldn't ignore relative to Fabio. Ultimately, you want a guy who's going to also do very well when the bike's better. And this weekend, it was better. And Morbidelli didn't do anything with it at all. Like, yes, he brought it home in ninth place, whereas Fabio Quartararo tucked the front and exited the race and did more injury damage to himself. But he was 15 seconds down on Takanakagami on the Honda, having completed a long lap for cutting the track. 15 seconds. 15 seconds. <laughs> What? I looked at the lifetime. I couldn't believe it. I was, did something happen? Did did a chasm open up for 15 seconds in the middle of the track between that position and the other position? Wormhole. Yeah. Somebody just, yeah. Time yeah, actually did one lap twice. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't, what was his issue? What was he talking about? What was the problem? The problem was just a just general lack grip. of grip. Yeah. yeah. Which is not the most encouraging. It, it, was, it was a fairly universal complaint, but it wasn't one that Quadraro was making. Yeah. It's, so... When you lose 15 seconds to a Honda, a non-Marcus Honda, the, the only acceptable reason is I ran off the track uh, 
to go see a friend in the grandstands or whatever and lost seconds there. Again, I don't want to be too harsh because a lot of weekends from Franco Morbidelli season have been really, really good. But you this just, wasn't one of them. This is a just terrible timing. Really, really bad timing for a really likable guy. And I don't, increasingly, I don't see the point of this carrying on. And I think maybe a fresh start, if it's possible, could be better for both parties. As weird as that sounds. And also, I think from how Frank Morbidelli has been talking about his Yamaha future, you get the feeling that maybe he gets the vibe that that might be Yamaha's preference too. And if that's Yamaha's preference, if you're just the seat warmer there, time to rebuild somewhere else as much as that's possible. And there might not be a place in 2024, but there are people in the MotoGP paddock who will take care of Franco Morbidelli. And he's still a good rider. Yeah, he's got a safety net, hasn't he, with being part of VR46 for so long. His selling... Okay, take out Thomas de Rio Hondo, where he was mega in strange circumstances on the gripless track. But his kind of selling point when he's been defending his record this year has kind of been how much closer he's been to Quattararo and, and beaten him a couple of times. But that tends to be on the weekends when Yamaha's absolutely terrible. Yes. This weekend, Yamaha looks pretty good. Quattararo sticks it on the podium in the sprint and would have had a pretty decent, potentially, Grand Prix if he hadn't crashed into, into Zarco. He elevated the bike when the bike was that little bit better. There's been no sign of Morbidelli doing that apart from that one-off in Argentina. Yeah. And it's a sad thing. You know, I, 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 I've said a lot of times on the podcast, I like Morbidelli as a concept. I think he did, he's done great things in his career and he's a really interesting guy who I'd like to see succeed again. But like you say, Val, this is much like Marquez and Honda. Not quite that dramatic, but it's another example of this relationship is not working for rider or team. Get it done. Fresh start. And ironically, I actually think that uh, Morbidelli and Dixon have the same plan B um, in that if we don't see both of them in super, if we don't see both of them in MotoGP next year, I think that they'll become number one on the shopping list for Yamaha's World Superbike project to replace Toprak. Oh, I think they'd both be. I know that um, Dixon is talking to a couple of factory superbike teams, and I would imagine that Yamaha won't want to lose Morbidelli. And he'd he'd go to superbikes and kick ass. Yeah, but if they, I think he'll he'll take it very personally if he's if he's dropped. I think going by the the way he's been talking about it, I think he might honestly prefer going on the sidelines. But for there's a, nowhere else on the MotoGP grid for 24. No, but I think for 25, Marco Bezzecchi in some way will vacate the VR46 seat that mm. I think Franco Morbidelli can take. Uh, I don't know where Marco Bezzecchi specifically will go, but I suspect he will go to a factory place somewhere. Uh, and I, I think probably VR46 will be more interested in continuing Franco Morbidelli's yeah, MotoGP exactly. career than, say, promoting Celestino Vietti from Moto2. Yeah. We'll get back to the pod in a moment. But first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at 
grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. We really should at some point talk about the Dutch Grand Prix, shouldn't we? You mentioned Bezeki in that answer. He he dominated much of the weekend, but he couldn't quite turn it into a, a clean sweep and a defeat of Pekka Banyaya in the Grand Prix. So we're back on kind of traditional 2023 form. It's pretty good. It's pretty close, but Banyaya's got that little extra bit. Val, what did you make of the victory battle this weekend? It was decent, but it's it's you know sort of it's what we predicted coming into the tradition like the European trip ahead or of traditional tracks. There was sort of the suspicion of is this where Peko Banyaya pushes on the gas and sorts himself out and starts to build a bit of an advantage. And he it's not unassailable right now, but he did he basically did perfect one 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 two 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 one I think across the six races of the three weekends. Very very good. It's just it's the familiar Ducati thing of the bike is really good, but Pecco is the one who you can always count on to be right up there and minimize sort of his his problems, unless the problem is just crashing out of the race for no reason, which happens sometimes. <laughs> but in terms of performance, like the performance is always going to be there or thereabouts. This was another weekend for him where he sort of started out a bit weak and then just immediately turned it around. So clearly that side of the garage is working extremely well in, in how their processes are and how they approach every single week and how they work with this reduced practice format doesn't seem to be catching them out at all um it looked at, at certain points it definitely looked like a marco Pateki clean sweep of the weekends there were some sessions where he just looked completely untouchable but he foreshadowed coming out of the sprint that banyaya has been on the medium rear banyaya had a bit more and also, Bezeki has the problem that he doesn't start very well, even compared to the other Ducatis, not just compared to the rocket ship KTMs. And all of that basically combined to give us the, the Sunday outcome that we got, but also with the addition that once Bezeki cleared Brad Bender for second place, uh, he had some vibration on the rear or something like that, and just couldn't push up on Banyaya to even challenge him at all. So he still had a, a really, really good weekend all around, just those rough edges that ultimately contributed to, I think, the rider who most would agree was still comfortably the fastest and most impressive this weekend, not getting the full points haul. But that's, you know, that's... Pekko Banyaya is, you know, even if he's not the fastest Ducati, he's fast enough He's fast enough to be the fastest Ducati if, if he's given the opportunity. He's never so off that other Ducatis make him look bad. I mean, we've said since the start of the season that he was the favorite for the championship. But this is the weekend where there are now no other rivals. The only person who can beat Peko Bagnaya at this point is Peko Bagnaya. Because yeah. he just looked, you know, the, the, the way that he's taken these three races, built a significant points lead. And I know there's still a lot of points in play with sprint races and all that. But he just, he looks like someone that is super confident, super content. Um, you know, th they've nailed the ability to turn around a poor start to the weekend into a really strong race which is not an easy thing to do at the minute with with limited practice time and limited tires um he is by far and above the rider who understands the ducati best no one else is able to to even come close and you know he's proven over three races now that he is also super consistent and 
And in the end, what we're seeing over and over and over and over again is kind of what we predicted where there are other Ducatis who are super fast and maybe even faster, but through a combination of consistency and racecraft, Bagnaia is just is racking them up. Um, yeah, for, for me, it was completely sublime weekend from him, um, especially after turning it around a little bit, but also whenever things were still a little bit, you know, not all there, taking a good solid second place in the sprint. Yeah, um, pretty perfect weekend for him, really. He got rightly criticized for his, you know, mistakes and throwing away points, but that sort of obscures the fact that I think he's a, an extremely good Sunday tactician. So this is a very, very good vision of how he wants the race to play out and when when he does what, where, where he sits. I think he's... He's Andrea De Vicioso with qualifying, yeah. <laughs> which is it is which to me is a pretty pretty scary combination uh, because yeah, and uh, this weekend by the way he matched Andrea De Vicioso in Grand Prix wins at fifteen, and he already has one more with Ducati because one of Dovi's was with Honda, so I, that is for me that is a very because you can you can sort of see in races that in the first half he can sometimes he knows that it's really quite a nuisance to overtake him quite an undertaking so he has that knowledge always and he paces it the way he wants to pace then he makes the break when he wants to make it and that doesn't that doesn't seem to relate to the crashes in any way his crashes have come at weird moments they haven't come for i think poor strategizing because again i think he plays out the races very very well um i don't know if he's the best rider on the grid right now i would because it's hard to say right now in MotoGP with how good ducati is as a collective I think you, there is a good Brad Binder challenge for that role, for instance. But but he's very good. He's very good. And if he's champion this year, the way he's been performing, even if Ducati has a baked in advantage, he'll be a great champion because he's, he's impressive to watch and uh, very, very robust in his performance. The, the mistakes that we've seen him make this year have almost all come whenever... It seems like they come whenever he doesn't have a plan, whenever he suddenly like finds himself six seconds in the lead, loses concentration and falls off. But he's he's very good at managing a race. He's got that Davizioso ability to, to manage really well. Um, it's almost like he needs a bit of pressure to really perform at his best. And we've seen people like Martin deliver that for him, Bezeki deliver that for him, Bender deliver that for him. Whenever he's in that situation, it just, it all works. So maybe, maybe the best way to beat Peko on a title is to just, back off every week just make sure you're second 10 seconds behind him and see what happens just let him lose focus and <laughs> yeah just make him do the the 26 laps by himself i mean the cards on the table right now we this today when we saw pekka overtake brad binder for the lead how many of us thought okay that's it that's the race done yeah totally. i did 100 yeah. percent yeah so even with all of marco Bezzecchi's space because i just i i inherently trust Banyai to manage the race. Maybe I don't trust him entirely not to fall off for sure, but I trust him to have like if if he stays on, I trust him to finish ahead, even if the other maybe has a little bit something more. And I mean that's what we thought we, we saw. If Bezeki's race was a little tidier, might he have challenged? Sure, I still back Banyai. That said, after last week at the Saxon Ring, we were very excited about Jorge Martin's semi-title challenge. I do think if it if it had been Martin he was racing with Val was very excited about no I still am <laughs> average across the podcast was more excited than dismissive I would say 
I, I still am because because I think he's had a pretty good weekend to be honest. In yeah, terms of this is this is where I was heading with that. He, he didn't. He had, he was effectively podium battle both times. He just gave himself too much to do. Yes. With with qualifying, I think he he did an okay points loss given his mistake in qualifying. But you know, mistakes happen. Maybe they happen a bit too many times in Martin. Surprisingly, in qualifying now. Because that's usually that's what you associate Jorge Martin with. But we now come to some other tracks where he might just blitz a bunch of pole records and be a factor again. His race pace was really good. His race pace was really good also on Sunday at a track where I had my doubts. And I was wondering if this is going to be like a big, big pasting from Banya and Biseki and a big points loss. And it was a pretty big points loss, but it was more circumstantial than pace based. And he was he was really quick and clean air on Sunday. Yeah, but it's a big enough points loss that it really has taken the sting out of his his title bid after that run of momentum because uh, it had been such a strong run up to now. But you, when you're when you are the person on the satellite bike trying to do the underdog thing, you can't afford to suddenly let the the main contender who's got the team advantage pull out thirty odd points on you in, in one weekend. Yeah, but well, the people that like he lost. How many did he lose? Fifteen, maybe. I could, I could count this. This is not a. I'm going to quickly plan. have a look, so right. we're not just guessing. Yeah, uh, he only lost nineteen, but the cumulative effect is a thirty-five point lead now. So still one race weekend. Yeah, I'm, I'm, like you say, we've got tracks coming up. We've got the, we've got Austria, not too well, quite a long time in date terms, but not too long in race terms. Where Martin has, has done some spectacular things there, but. Uh, the other person who you, you mentioned as a contender for best rider on the grid just now, Val, was not in very precise form on final and penultimate laps this weekend. Brad Binder's double podium loss for basically doing the same thing at the end of both races was bizarre and really painful because he's he is doing so well to relentlessly be the person getting among a bunch of Ducatis and to bin off two podiums. Actually, I'm saying that in a really harsh round bender. I think the rule's stupid, and I just found it really annoying that he lost two podiums for this rule. What's your take? I think the rule's fine, but I I don't understand that bit of track design. They either yeah. make it more of a kink or don't have it. Uh, it's it's like you're basically you're trying to get people to breach track limits. It's like trolling. You're trolling them <laughs> specifically, trying to get it. And yeah, some people manage, some people don't. Most people manage not to do it. But it's it's such a weird incongruent challenge i don't see how it's really part of the other thing that we're doing it's like well here's the track go as fast as you can also here's a little bit of obstacle course yeah like, get the hell out of here with that was <laughs> either make it a bigger kink or make it straighter anyway it's his fault he admitted it's his fault repeatedly he called himself brain dead uh i don't care phenomenal weekend really good uh the ducatians is in such great form right now i was genuinely it was borderline inspiring to watch brad bender aided by a soft rear tire but still just drag his desmosedici uh, well he's so fast it's as if he's a desmosedici <laughs> he's rc16 i think that's a bit of wishful thinking yeah. for a storyline we'd like to see well remember start of the season i'd said he'd be title favorite on the desmosedici yeah. i believe that more now than i did before he's in really good form he's just really good i'm very very impressed uh the two podiums whatever He's not going to be in the title contention this year. The Ducatis have too much. He's, he's really good. 
he's doing great. It was a great weekend. You may as well just cut a few corners, get a few on, on the road results that get taken away. Just anytime he sees a curb at <laughs> green, just aim straight. <laughs> it should work out. I mean, it's going to come as no surprise whatsoever to discover that I completely disagree with Val. Well, Brad, then there's bad. Or are you trying to say? <laughs> the rule is that it's not necessarily that the rule is dumb. I mean, yeah, it was another weekend of the stewards being the stewards. Um, <laughs> if you're going to police rules like that, where you're policing them so, so precisely, like Binder seemed to get done twice, then you have to do it to everyone else as well. And there was loads of people who did the same thing, even on last laps and got away with it, um, including Martin, who, yeah, a penalty wouldn't have, um, wouldn't have affected his race necessarily because he was already... He, you know, there was no one else. The next person was 10 seconds behind him. But that doesn't mean you don't give him a penalty. Um, but the, even, you know, the way the rules are worded, you have to use all of the track. You're not allowed to go off the track. And it, you're penalized for going off the track. But it's at the discretion of the stewards if they believe you gained an advantage. Brad Bender didn't gain an advantage there either time. Um, because it was the final, you know, if anything, with the height of the ass and curbs that everyone complains about, the drop off the curb and on it again probably actually hindered him more than it gained him. Um, yeah, we, we saw it as well in Moto2 with Pedro Costa getting a penalty for supposedly shortcutting the final chicane when he actually sat up and let riders through to do it, but he only gave away like 0.9 when he has to give away a second and that's his job to gain or to calculate. Ugh, yeah, I mean... The, the the track limits thing it just seems like they pull it out of their arses every weekend and it shouldn't be like that. And it frustrates me deeply. So um, Brad Bender was robbed of two podiums by the Stewarts and he should have had a glorious weekend and he didn't. For what it's worth, I, you know, sticking up for the Stewarts at all. Hell, what? I, we don't, I, we I, don't I, do that here, Val. We don't do that here. Yeah. Well, I'm going to say there were two moments in the weekend where I just... I shook my hands and I was like, whatever. And I basically went into a Lacious Pargro mode of, I don't want to talk about this anymore. I cannot. <laughs> um, first moment was Luca Marini getting a post-race penalty um, in the sprint for... So he and Ane Bastinini went into the Gertimmer chicane side by side. Bastinini lobbed it down the inside. Basically, Marini ended up having to cut it. I, I, don't, think, I don't think he had quite... Maybe he had a bit of room to try not to cut it, but he decided to cut it. He ended up crossing the line ahead of Bastinini. Because the stewards operate so much at their discretion, logically, you just give him a penalty that sends him behind Bastinini, it's fine. Instead, they give him a penalty that threw him out of the points. Didn't like that. Didn't think that made a ton of sense. Um, it was like, I guess it was lap time gained, lap time lost. I don't know. It's, I didn't like it at all. Second one, uh, Jake Dixon overtakes for the win in Moto2 against Ayogura, basically completes the overtake into turn one Harbok, but doesn't quite complete it, and then just takes the corner like Agura isn't there on the outside. His rear wheel touches Agura's front wheel. Agura loses a ton of momentum, doesn't get to follow Dixon through the next few corners, doesn't get to fight for the win anymore. He's out of that particular battle. Was not was not a clean overtake at all. In fact, it was it was minor because Dixon was faster and he was going to win that race, but it's... For me, there are a lot of gray areas in MotoGP stewarding. This is not one of them. This was not a clean overtake. I don't I don't understand the person who would suggest that's a clean overtake. There is no logical clean overtake in my mind. Agura didn't change his line at all. Dixon just went rear wheel into his front wheel and boom, victory secured. Congrats. Nobody looked at it. Whatever. 
It's just we just do things sometimes. We roll a d20 <laughs> dice from Dungeons and Dragons every time to decide what happens. Cool. <laughs> Very cool. I thought they pulled it out of a hat personally. Um I, I would imagine without having had the chance obviously to speak to the stewards and ask them how they came to that decision making process that uh, they would have claimed that because Dixon was in front at the time that it was a girl's job to miss him. Um, but that's a presumption. My presumption is just didn't didn't feel like dealing with it. That's my presumption. No, that's not a, that, that. That sounds fairly factual. <laughs> it was probably lunchtime. They could have looked at that one and gone, nah, that's racing. But then don't, don't do that. And then look at someone inching over a weird bit of curb onto a bit of green stuff that may or may not have a consequence and make that a podium deciding. If, if an ascent battle is going to be decided on a last lap, I want it to be Nicky Hayden, Colin Edwards style, just complete chicane, mayhem, gravelly chaos, someone upside down and there's a winner. I don't want someone going a couple of inches over a bit of curb onto a green thing and someone else is pointing at the green thing and then there's a position reversal in the results screen afterwards. That's just that's just boring and fiddly. And yeah, that's, you know, we, we obsess over style guide things and apostrophes and stuff because we're journalists and we're not as exciting as, as, as riders and drivers. This, that's like bringing editing nuances into deciding a Grand Prix result. Let us do that. You just do stuff with like, passion and lariness and spectacular moves and don't yeah stop it are you su- suggesting that freddie spencer's not a world champion he's a sub editor <laughs> <laughs> and it's not specifically on freddie spencer but like the editing part of the steward's decision is it's not the best part of the steward's decisions is it <laughs> no yeah. as yeah. we've seen with some of the phrasing earlier in the season <laughs> yeah this is also true well, they, they, they put out a sanction at the weekend, uh, giving Izan Guevara, a Moto2 rider, a sanction for contravening the specific instructions given to Moto3 teams and riders. I mean, that's pretty basic stuff. There's one more person I really want to talk about before we before we clock off for the summer break. Um, Paul Espargaro came back to the paddock and gave one of the more striking interviews of the year um, in terms of the content of it. It was kind of... We, we knew his crash had been bad. We knew the injuries were kind of unpleasant. We thought that as we saw the crash unfolding. But he was he was very stark in how he described what he'd been through over these over these last few months. And even though we're kind of accustomed to riders talking about injuries, we're very accustomed to riders getting injured this year. This one really stood, stood out as quite an affecting media briefing for me. Yeah, um, it was good to see. Great to see Paul back. And, you know, Paul is back as Paul, as the funny, polite, caring guy that he is. Um, it was really, really good to see him back and laughing and joking with us as always. Um, it was, it, it's very odd um, to see, you know, I can't remember the last time we had a MotoGP rider go away because of an injury and come back looking a bit different because of the the massive amount of trauma that they've been through. But that is, you know, Paul's got a, a little bit of a, his, sort of his facial structure is a little bit different, quite a bit of scarring around his mouth because of the severity of his injuries. And he looks positively tiny compared to the last time we see them because he basically lost 10 kilos because he spent a month with his jaw wired shut drinking soup. Um, he he has had a really, really tough ride of it. Um and and yeah, you're, you're right, Matt. We we didn't we knew it was bad. We knew that he'd been through really really tough stuff. But you know, whenever you hear a writer talking about how they're now a centimeter and a half shorter because of their injuries, 
that really drives it home that that we came really, really close to a very different set of circumstances with Paul. So, yeah, fantastic to see him back and, and talking and joking and laughing. Um, even better to hear that he believed he was fit enough to ride a MotoGP bike this weekend, even if no one else believes he was fit enough to do it. And <laughs> he will absolutely be back at Silverstone and ready to, ready to rejoin the grid um, and hopefully ready to, yeah, rack up a bit of success in that gas gas bike before the end of the year. Yeah, his KTM return, KTM, gas, gas, whatever, is, is one of Hero these... Hero Mobility Group return. Yes, that's the one. That, I remember that now. Um, is one of the storylines we've been we've been missing. And it's it's. I thought him turning up just to have a chat this weekend was actually a really nice kind of lead into the second half of the season because how he gets on actually back on that bike properly is going to be a really, really interesting one. We haven't seen a lot from Gas Gas in his absence. Um, I'm intrigued and hopeful. I mean, Augusto Fernandez is leading rookie of the year. <laughs> he is the only rookie, but he's leading a Actually, no, joking aside, um, I think he's the only person to have scored points in every single Sunday race this year, which is, yeah. uh, frankly, quite amazing. Um, you know, Augusto Fernandez has had a really good year, and it hints that that team and, and that box are really strong, and Paul's going to come back in there and give, and not just start to deliver good results himself, but I think give Augusto a really good boost as well. Um, Augusto was Just joking. Just in time about, to be replaced. <laughs> <laughs> Augusto was joking about how, you know, he came in from the sprint race on Saturday and was very, very surprised to discover Paul was sitting waiting for him along with the rest of the engineers to do his technical debrief with him because he wanted a bit of input and wanted to hear what the bike was doing. So those two are going to work really closely and, and be really involved. Um, and it's good that Paul's back. The other element of the story is that uh, Paul didn't really want to come back this weekend when he wasn't going to ride and essentially got harassed, cajoled, forced into it by Brother Aleish, who decided that it was absolutely definitely for the best of everyone, including Paul and all of his team. And I think bundled him up and put him in a private jet and rolled him off at Nassen and said, here, go talk to people. <laughs> Which is, you know, it sort of wraps up the Aleish and Paul brotherly dynamic quite well as well, I think. You get a lot of feeling from MotoGP social media. Sometimes I don't mean the series, but I mean people who watch MotoGP and talk about it on social media that maybe there's sometimes not a ton of love for Paul and Aleish as, you know, two pretty outspoken guys with weird career paths who you know, have achieved good things in MotoGP, but maybe both have left something on the table in some ways. Although I think in Aleish's case, that's very harsh to say, but he's, you know, he's not one in a while on a bike that, I think a lot of us consider might be a winner and Paul obviously yet to win a race and it'll be quite a tall order considering you know Brad Binder hasn't won a Grand Prix this season all he's been on fantastic for with KTM but I I think it's, it's important to drive home just those are two really sweet guys really really sweet really nice not just good for a quote but they make MotoGP better with their presence Paul and Ashton Fargo make MotoGP better uh which is, you know, I'm glad to see Paul back, although I'll, I'm terrified to think of him crashing next because it's going to be just, yeah, it's going to be a heart-stopping moment even if all MotoGP riders crash all the time, but given what he's been through. But I, it's, it's too, I, I don't know why. I just wanted to, to drive that point home. It's such a weird thing to say in the middle of a race debrief podcast, but too, this, it's, a really, it's a really sweet family to have in MotoGP, and I, I, want, I want there to be more recognition of that, weirdly. I want to put that out, out in the world. I don't know. I'm going to absolutely stop us there because we're ending on a heartwarming moment going into summer break, and <laughs> none of us are moaning about anything. 
And I think we should keep it that way. I think we should wrap up here. Um, so summer break, it's a long one and it's quite soon after the spring break. Toby Moody will be doing three of his interview episodes during that time. We'll be with you twice as well. The first of ours will be a listener questions special. You can send your voice notes or your email questions to podcasts at the hyphen race.com. We're, we're particularly keen to hear your questions about people that you think we should be talking about a bit more. Haven't talked about much this season. Um, we suspect we might get one or two about Mark Marquez, Ryder Market, etc. as well. Which is which is also good, but there's you know there's so much going on on the grid, and everybody's so close, and everybody's playing some sort of role weekend to weekend, and everybody's got an interesting story this season. So, but it, there's only so much that fits into a an hour long episode, and even then we stretch it. Yes, even, you know, this this weekend it took us until basically the third section to even properly talk about the race weekend because that's you know that's just MotoGP for you on my on my recorder i noticed that i first said the words peco and bagnaya about 45 minutes into the podcast which uh, sorry sorry peco i do apologize for that but you weren't you being good at stuff isn't as interesting as everybody else imploding i'm afraid and that's just that's just the, the price you pay for success uh, so we'll be back in a couple of weeks time toby will be with you next week thank you for your company so far during this genuinely really enjoyable if fraught at time season really looking forward to hearing the questions that you're going to bombard us with and for val's sake please can some of them be about uh savadori le corona who else is on your list val bit of augusta fernandez chat oh just 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 honestly just all of them like nakagami de gian antonio raul fernandez <laughs> just go for it go for it i'm i'm always happy to discuss maybe i'm the only person who's happy to discuss well, also you two guys, but I mean, in terms of the listeners. But yeah. There you go. You've got your instructions. Go for it, and we'll see you back here in a couple of weeks' time. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.